Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. Your host is Bernadette Schwert, who you'll find at copyschool.com, and you can find out more about all our copywriting courses at copywritingcourses.com.au. Now, over to Bernadette. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. If you'd like to learn how to write copy quickly and become an instant expert on any topic, then you need to complete one of our flagship copywriting courses. Here's a review from Maddie, who recently completed one of our courses. I was recently offered a copywriting job to write for a financial services company. I had no idea how to write for that industry, but after completing your copywriting course, I had the formula and templates for becoming an instant expert on any topic in a matter of hours. That creative brief sheet is gold. I can now take on any writing job in any industry with confidence. Well, thank you, Maddie. To find out more about our courses, visit writercenter.com.au forward slash essentials or copyschool.com. And if you like our podcasts, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. As a leading journalist with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, there's not a lot that Jewel Topsfield hasn't written about. Social affairs, politics, immigration, education and global affairs are just a few of her specialty areas. Beyond journalism, Jewel is a sought-after speaker, lecturer at universities and schools, and has led a team that won a Walkley Award and also served as a Walkley Awards judge. I'm talking to Jewel today about her life as a journalist and how her writing life has changed over the years in response to the changing media landscape, in response to the ways in which we consume media, and in response to the way in which the success or otherwise of a story is now measured, and much more. If you'd like a masterclass in how to research a topic quickly and come up with world-class content quickly that you know is going to be read by thousands and thousands of people, that has the potential to spark a Senate inquiry, as her story on people smuggling did, you could take a leaf out of Jewel's writing life. Jewel, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much. Now, Jill, you've been the social affairs editor and many other things um, throughout your career. And I guess what you and journalists in general and copywriters have in common is the increasing need to just research really quickly because you get, I guess, given a story and you just have to be across it and write with authority quite quickly, which is what copywriters do as well. So I'm just curious as to what tips or strategies do you use as a journalist to come up to speed with a topic very quickly? So, I mean, obviously Google is all of our friends. So basically I research as extensively as I possibly can. Uh, I canvas a lot of research papers, look at what academic work has been done in, in space. I read from publications that I, I admire. Uh, you know, I, I keep track of journalists from publications like the New York Times or the Guardian or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal and look at how they have covered issues. Uh, I, um, I often contact uh, universities and say, I'm, you know, researching in this particular space. Do you have experts in this area? 
Uh, the universities themselves now have often excellent resources. Melbourne University, for example, has Pursuit, which is basically where they're, um, it's very similar. And, and again, the conversation is excellent. If you're looking for academics who, you know, write, and then because they're working with journalists at the conversation, they write and present their research in a really accessible way. So I find that a really invaluable resource. And I guess Pursuit and Monash University does similar where they present that they have a, a journalist who helps their, um, their academics present their research in an accessible way. So they're really great resources. That's amazing. I wouldn't have ever as a copywriter thought about contacting the universities, for example, as a starting point for research. Do you, do you think the universities are open? I mean, you've got a sort of, I would say a privileged position in the sense that you're a reputable journalist with a reputable publication. Can anyone just contact the universities like that, or is it really just the domain of, of people in your position? Well, I mean, I think obviously being so that, that the universities all have uh, media teams. And so, I mean, I think obviously their role is to assist media. And so therefore being a journalist helps tremendously in that area. But having said that, I mean, what you can also do and what I find very effective is uh, if there is a piece uh, by an academic, say, published in The Conversation or published in Pursuit or, you know, you find research, uh, then it's extremely easy these days to find online their email and just send them an email. And, I mean, I find that incredibly, like, I'm amazed often at how quickly uh, people respond, um, you know, almost always happy to speak. Um, and, you know, it's difficult for me to tell, I mean, obviously, yes, you know, I've got the privilege of a platform and so um, it is possible, you know, like I, it, it may be difficult, more difficult for people that don't have that publishing platform, but certainly I've been so impressed and grateful to academics for being so accessible. I, that's kind of just opened my mind completely, Julie, you know, I've been a copywriter for 30 years and it's never really occurred to me to contact the university media team or indeed the conversation in order to complete the, the research that I might be doing. So I just think it's a really lovely tidbit right there. So thanks for that, that gold nugget. Um, now, as another commonality between journalists and copywriters, you have to write really quickly. And again, on topics that you may not have you know, a deep knowledge on. So do you have any tips for how you write a story? Because I know copywriters are also now writing more content. You know, it's more of a, a blog style article uh, rather than just the sales pitch. Any what, what's your structure for writing a story? I mean, I know there's the inverted pyramid that journalists use in, in university where they're taught, but do you have a structure that you use on a regular basis? It really depends, and I change it around a bit. I mean, as you said, at university, we were certainly taught about the inverted pyramid. And for your listeners who aren't familiar with the inverted pyramid, which is terrible journalism jargon, um, that is basically where you get the who, why, what, where, when in the first sentence, in the first paragraph. So uh, I remember being taught that someone was pulling away on a bus and you're sort of screaming out the information at them and you're just trying to get the whole thing across. So the idea historically was that if people, people are obviously time poor um, and uh, you wanted to get as much of the gist of what the story was about in the first paragraph, and then if they didn't have time to read the rest of the article, then so be it. Whereas now I think that so many things have turned that on its head a bit. I mean, there is, we still do at times use the inverted pyramid um, for news stories. But because we are now 
really trying to uh, make compelling content. Sometimes when you get so much information in the one paragraph, it's a bit information dense. It's a bit difficult to kind of really uh, understand the significance of what you're saying. So often now we experiment with different ways of telling the story. Uh, and I mean, to a certain extent, that's always been done with, say, features where you might start with an anecdote. But we really, I guess, play around now with form and structure uh, and try and create engaging content that people will read for longer, you know, that pe people will stay with and, you know, ideally, I guess, read to the end of the piece or, um, you know, feel compelled to continue reading. So I think that digital the digital first has in many ways transformed the way we write. And yeah, as I said before, I'm not saying that we no longer use the inverted pyramids. It is still a staple for a lot of what we, you know, used to call hard news stories, I guess. But increasingly, we're experimenting with different ways of storytelling. You just mentioned digital first. I presume that's policy where you say we write for the digital mediums first. How does that change the writing based on what you used to do when I guess it was newspaper first? Yeah, so at the time when we first started doing this, which I think from memory our digital first policy came in about 2013, but I can't, don't hold me to that reference. Um, and at the time it seemed really radical because the whole idea was that, you know, you held your powder dry and the front page splash was where, you know, all, everything was stories would be broken uh, and then they would run online after that. But increasingly, but then, you know, and, and at first it sort of seemed shocking that you might publish something online first uh, and then it be in the newspaper after that. Whereas now I kind of smile, that seems like such a quaint anachronism for that to have been so groundbreaking at the time that that was, that, you know, it, it is, it seems really obvious now that as soon as you get the information um, that, and, and put it, you know, and, and compile it, that you put it up as, you know, when you can. And then we also time, I mean, obviously that's the breaking news, but we look at uh, when, you know, most people are reading as well. So there's various windows where, there are spikes in readership midday at lunch, for example, when people might be eating their lunch, they might click onto the website or in the mornings and evenings when they're commuting. Uh, so we try and tailor putting up fresh content uh, for those, those, those peak hours, if you like, or those times. So uh, yeah, there has been, and I think that digital with digital first has come again with sort of creative experiments in how we tell our stories, the use of podcasts to, to tell stories, the use of multimedia, digital, you know, uh, yeah, just really play with form. And that's been really one of the exciting things about working in journalism and seeing how it has emerged, just all the different options. And I love, I mean, one thing, because I'm a complete nerd, one of the things that I love about digital is that because you can hyperlink, you can show your readers where you've sourced your information. So if you say a piece of research, you can hyperlink to that research. You know, if you say this was reported in this, uh, you know, in this news organization first, you can link to that. So I feel like you really give a much more texture and richness to the experience of reading than say in the newspaper where it was all very two-dimensional and yeah, yeah. Mm. I feel like it 
and it's much more accountable in many ways. Yes. And does it change the way you open your paragraphs, for example, because it might be the first thing we see, which indicates whether we're going to click on it or not online. So are you very conscious of that first, firstly, the headline and then the first line of the story? Does that change the way you write? Yes. So I am constantly thinking, how can I write in a way that is compelling? How can I attract readers? What is it that I am trying? How can I distill the essence, I guess, of what this piece is about and why I'm writing it? We also have, so the digital editor is a woman named Daniela Militic, and she is a genius at coming up with uh, basically reading our pieces and then doing what we call the WAF, which is, so there's a headline and then there's the WAF. Uh, I think the WAF is write-off. I think that's what, shot. this is jargon, but I think write-off. Um, and so that's like one line that sums up what the piece is about and why you should read it. And what has fascinated me is watching her at work. Um, and we often, we call, again, this is jargon, but we call these the cells. So this is what you see on the home page. Um, and it is the headline and this, this pre, this line that explains what the piece is about or why you should read it, uh, that is so effective, uh, in, in getting readers in. And I think what is different, like initially, I think there was this sort of cynicism around clickbait, but the thing about clickbait is, is that if you click on something and ultimately the headline is misleading or sensationalist, people won't stay with it. And what we're finding, uh, when there are very talented people like Daniela at is that people are clicking on the story and then realising that it's worthwhile reading and, and staying and we're getting really good engagement time as well. Mm-hmm. So, you- so we work... You go. I was just going to say, sorry. So we work closely with, you know, yes, we write the story and yes, we think about it ourselves, but we also write clo- work closely with the digital team about ideas of ways of promoting our work to audiences. Is that... New, yeah. I mean, not in the last couple of years, but the the role of the journalist in past, I I understand, would not have been to worry necessarily about did I get a click, you know, how my metrics. Is that something that's on your mind as you write or choose a story as to whether this is going to be, you know, rating well, so to speak? Not necessarily how you what you choose a story, but how you present it. So I always think if I if I you know, done a story that hasn't performed particularly well, but the problem was the way I told it rather than the, you know, rather than the subject itself. So it's really about how do you present information in a compelling way? So for example, I uh, was wrote a piece earlier in the year and it was about the impact of gambling. And it was at a time when there were discussions in many states about whether or not about changing, you know, strengthening laws to, you know, to make it harder for people to become addicted to the pokies. And in the past, say for a paper story, I might've written a fairly dry piece about, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, what the, what the, what the policy might look like, you know, what the various advocates were saying, whether it would help to, you know, have prepaid cards so that you had a fixed limit on the amount of money that you could spend. Uh, and I guess I really thought, because I think that this is such an important social issue and it's such a, a you know, a, a societal ill, really, gambling um, and pokey addiction. And there is, uh, you know, so I thought about it and I talked to my editor and we had the idea that I would go to, and not an all night because I think it closed at five in the morning, but I went at three in the morning 
to a, a pokey den, if you like, and just observed people that were really in that state of trance almost at three in the morning. Um, and yeah, just, you know, experienced what it was like, uh, the way that I was offered coffee and snacks to keep going. And then I started off that piece about what that's like uh, to be there at three in the morning. And then I interviewed a woman who had been jailed for her pokey addiction. So I talked to people who had lived experience and what they would like to see. Whereas I think if I had just written, and I know in the past when I have, a piece saying that there are calls from gambling advocates to, you know, restrict the amount of money that can be spent at a poker machine, that it just wouldn't have got that engagement. So it's about, I think, thinking about how you tell a story. Do you get a word count to start with? How does that actually work in journalism? Because uh, copywriting, you know, you generally work to a word count. You know what the space is. Is that the same in your world? And uh, yes, online is a little bit more flexible, obviously, uh, but it depends. Like usually for print, you have a uh, a word count, obviously, um, and that you have discussions with your editor about what you think and they think the word count should be. Uh, and then sometimes if it's considered there, it's worth writing more for online than you put in what we call print count, uh, which means that things, you know, and often we do that ourselves as reporters, we indicate where we think there can be cut. But I think also that, and one of the things that we're discussing now is that there can be a lot more discipline, sometimes a temptation, because you do have theoretically endless space online is to overwrite and to not be as disciplined and often you can be much more succinct. And I think that that's one of the things, one of the conversations we're really having now about, you know, whether for one thing it creates quite a bit of work sometimes for the sub-editors, producers, if the, if the reporters don't put in their own print cuts, but then also, yeah, there is often, there's a valid question, I think, about whether or not things can be got, can be too long online just because there isn't that same space constraint. So there's less rigor and less discipline like this. Or can be. Yes. And, and Joel, let's maybe go back a bit now because I think you're an Adelaide girl. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah as I am. Uh, and I'm just curious, how did you get started? So let's just like do a bit of a time travel. How did your career as a journalist get started? What, what led you to where you are today? Well, I did uh, work experience at the Messenger newspaper. Messenger were local suburban newspapers uh, and I was in year 10. Uh, and it was quite a funny story in that the editor actually thought that uh, I was, because I'm slightly older, I guess I kind of pressed up for work experience. I was in year 10 and he assumed that I was in fact a university student. A journalism student. And so I got sent out on all these jobs. And I mean, it was extraordinary and kind of fascinating. But also, of course, I was hopeless because I had no idea. And he, you know, I was saying, this is, you know, this is not great. And, but we, I didn't realize that he thought that I was a university student until the very end when the year 10 work experience teacher came in uh, to, uh, they, you know, how did things go? And of course, he realized and, you know, said, if ever I would like to come back, you know, I went, if I went to university and did, you know, then I, I would be, he would, he would consider me. And so eventually that's what happened. I started actually at the Adelaide Advertiser and after a couple of years went to Messenger uh, 
and worked there for a couple of years and then had an itchy feet to move to Melbourne uh, and got a job at the, at the Melbourne Times and then went to Australian Associated Press and from there went to The Age. Right. Yeah. Funny how, um, I guess you, you must have impressive to think that you were, you know, this professional person, but, uh, and um, well, I didn't, it was horrified at the time, but, uh, I think, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite funny. Yeah. yeah. I bet you had a bit of a laugh when you went, did you go back to work for that particular person? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Joel, in terms of your career, it's been quite, um, stellar, you know, in terms of the stories you've covered and the ranges of stories you've covered you know, from social affairs to housing to gambling, as you just mentioned. Um, what attracts you to a story? You know, do, do you have the, the, the control, I guess, to bring stories to light? Is that your job or do you get given the story? How does it actually work? A little bit of both. So um, uh, a lot of the ideas are mine. Uh, sometimes I'm commissioned to write things. Often I think because one of the things that I'm very interested in have become more so as I've got older, I guess, is complicated issues where things aren't binary. And the more I've become a journalist, I think often the answer lies in the middle and in the shades of grey. And I think that that can be difficult to convey, you know. So often I am commissioned to do some of those, I guess, more nuanced pieces that don't have easy answers. And yeah. I guess I've come to realise that you can have well-meaning people that have very different, bring, bring their own different views to topics and ideas. Uh, and I think when I was younger, I was much more black and white. And as I've got older, I've understood that issues are complex. I guess that's challenging too from the clickbait that we are just talking about because the clickbait works when it's black and white, when it's a really polarising kind of argument and it's simplified. Whereas what you've just said, and I, I agree with you, you know, most stories are in the gray, but how do you turn the gray into something that's clickable? You know, do you, do you find that, that challenge about making something quite dramatic when in fact the answer is less dramatic? So what we've found and what has been really interesting about, uh, you know, about all our, uh, our experiments with metrics and looking at what people People are much more interested in, so one of the metrics that we use is uh, subscriber conversions. So what, what, what is it that people read that make them want to subscribe? And what we find is that it's not the clickbait because you can get clickbait anywhere. So it is the pieces, the investigative pieces, the series on particular issues, the analysis, um, you know, the pieces that do delve into the complexity. So I think if agents in Morning Herald readers are willing to subscribe, they want to get content that they can't get elsewhere. And so I think that that has coalesced quite, you know, nicely with that, you know, wanting to present, I guess, um, more complexity. Mm. Well, I guess that begs the next question, which we're seeing a lot questions being raised about it, which is the journalist as the activist uh, rather than just the, the reporter. Um, what, what, what Do you see this happening yourself, like journalists becoming the centre of the story? Um, and what, what is the future of that, do you think? That we, certainly at the Sydney Morning Herald and the age that we 
you know, it is in, imperative that we are not activists, that we, uh, you know, really uh, at all, all times kind of interrogate, you know, like really research and interrogate. And that's something that I think is very, very important at the, at the age of the Sydney Morning Herald and something that's certainly uh, that kind of activism model is not the sort, sort of journalism that we do. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of copywriters ask me, you know, what do they do when they get presented with a topic that they maybe don't agree with or they have a personal opinion on? Um, and obviously they have the right to decline that, you know. But I guess as a journalist, you have to report on whatever comes your way. I mean, and it kind of feeds into what you just said, you don't have a personal opinion. But do you find some stories more difficult than others because you might have the personal, like, you know, gambling, for example, you, you've got a personal opinion on that, but you might have to report on, I don't know, a gambling company doing really well. I don't know. Just, do you know what I'm saying? Is, do you find that your personal opinions get challenged when you have to report on a story? You develop a a way, I mean, often, and things, some stories can be personally very challenging as well. You know, I suppose if they're, if they, you know, impact on your lives and we all have lives that, you know, it's, you don't just park your life at, at the door. Um, I mean, I think for me, it is about being as ethical, like I'm comfortable with everything I write because I have. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, to the best of my ability, um, be as impartial as I can. So, I mean, I think, and if I was asked to write something that I didn't feel comfortable writing, I'd just say no. Yeah. And we can't talk about journalism and writing without talking about AI. Um, I'm just curious, what role does AI, if any, play in your current role or at the age or city memory herald in general? Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation, AI. And I, Remember that there was a controversy. News Corp announced that they were using AI, uh, I think, to do local weather, hyper local stories. So, weather, local sports results, local events. Um, there's lots of discussions in newsrooms about how AI could be used. So, for example, and used innovatively as well. Like, I don't think that there will ever be a replacement for investigative journalists or you know, analysis, but I think there was an interesting nine did a hackathon, sorry, I just, um, nine did a hackathon, uh, which looked at how to use AI in innovative ways and what they had, the, 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 the team that won, uh, had a photograph, they got people, readers to send in a photograph of their pantry and the food that they had in, the, in their pantry and then AI generated recipes. So I think, you know, things like producing data sets, uh, I think, there are ways that, um, that, and I think Nine uh, does some sort of, uh, some sports packages, uh, you know, kind of fuel. Uh, but yeah, I guess, I guess it, to me, it won't replace the role of journalists, but uh, there, I think there are ways that you can innovate, innovate with AI. And I think it'll be a really fascinating space to watch. You mentioned a moment ago that you're a bit of a nerd. Um, what kind of nerd are you? Is it about um, software? Is it about the the way you write the stories or the research that you do? What, what, and just on that, what kind of software do you use that you can't live without or any kind of apps or hacks that you like to use in your writing? So the nerd bit relates to like I love to deep dive. Uh, so if I'm researching, I go down these rabbit holes 
and always over-research stories. I love history and, you know, um, so, and, and just details, quirky details. I love writing explainers for that reason. Uh, the, what has absolutely changed my life is something called otter. An otter is a transcription. And interestingly, this relates back to uh, your question about AI. So one thing that used to take when I was a baby journalist that used to take sometimes days was transcribing interviews. So you either wrote in shorthand, um, and you know, my shorthand is surprisingly like it's uh, surprisingly good, uh, but um, uh, yeah, but, but you know, you either had that and again, trawling through pages of shorthand could be time consuming as well, or you would trans, you would record interviews and then have to transcribe it all. But Ofter is an AI transcription service and one of, it's incredible. So you can be interviewing someone and you will see the words as scrolling across the screen um, as, as you speak. Uh, and so for one thing, you know that things are being recorded because that was always a heart-stopping moment in the, par- in, the, in the past where you never knew for sure oh, whether your tape recorder was working. Now you do because you can see it in real time. But also just to be able to have that, transcript that you know real life transcript and then you can do word searches so if you think if you remember that someone said something really interesting about carrots then you just you know put a word search in for carrots and up it pops and then you can get the direct quote as well so if you want to hear um and so that's been an absolute game changer that's been i think something that felt like science fiction when we started and now is incredible incredibly transformative and it's getting better and better because it's because it is based on AI. I noticed that initially um, when I started using it, uh, people who had accents, it wouldn't pick up the accents as so often the words would be slightly garbled and uh, but now it it I've just in the last few years seen how it's refined and refined and refined as it's been able to, you know, access more accents in its database in the cloud. It's pretty extraordinary. Isn't it? It's amazing. It's just the, the the speed at which you can do things just doesn't yeah, exist. Well. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, just on other a topic you just mentioned a moment ago about you don't park your personal life at the door. Um, just on that, when you do a story, and I guess Nick McKenzie is a great example of this because he's um, he does put himself out there on that. Yeah, that criminal element, you know, he he does sort of have those stories where I guess a lot of people are not happy for those stories to be told. Um, Do you ever feel unsafe? I'm just curious as to whether you've ever written a story that where you've had blowback or comments or a situation where you felt personally threatened in any way because, you know, the journalist is sometimes so connected to the story these days. Yeah, and so one of the one of the challenging stories that I wrote uh, was during the pandemic is on people who were prepared to sacrifice uh, their jobs uh, because they didn't believe in being vaccinated. They didn't want to get the vaccination. So it was during those times during, when, during the pandemic when there were vaccine mandates and there were a number of people who uh, felt so passionately about not being vaccinated that they were prepared to forego their employment. And that was a very challenging piece to write because there was a fine balance I uh, wanted to accurately you know kind of give voice to these people and the reasons why they were prepared to make you know a huge sacrifice um where while at the same time uh not 
wanting to, you know, wanting to also present the science behind vaccinations and so it was that delicate balance of not wanting to ridicule people for the choices that they made um, but also wanting to balance I guess what their concerns were about being vaccinated with the science and that was a really I agonized and agonized over every word of that yes um you know, and I, uh, I knew, I mean, it was such a contentious topic, really, that whole, during the middle of the pandemic, that whole uh, discussion around, you know, vaccines and rights and all, all those questions. And I knew that, you know, it would be controversial. And of course, it was, even though I sort of felt like I walked a tightrope with it. Um, and, you know, I got comments on social media, like, I hope your child dies. And um, you know, like emails to that effect. And that's, that's difficult, I think. In part, I think because you think, did I write something that distressed people so much that they would wish that, you know, my child died? Like it, it is such a, and so I guess, I mean, I think increasingly, and this is something where Tori Maguire, who is the executive editor of the agency in Morning Herald, has been terrific in terms of really emphasising safety of journalists. And by that, she also means um, the kind of mental health aspects of what it's like to be trolled on social media and what it's like to uh, have pylons. And I think I've seen, you know, she now emphasises that it is entirely up to us whether, I mean, obviously we have strong social media policies in terms of what we post, but also unlike I think a few years ago where we were encouraged to be active on social media. Now there is absolutely no obligation. I've really noticed, you know, like a lot of people that a lot of journalists are no longer on X, as uh, we now call Twitter, um, are very rarely post these days. Um, you know, I try not to read comments. I find that difficult, but on comments on stories, um, you know, it is interesting sometimes to, you know, kind of gauge the temperature of what people are thinking. And of course, some people make very valid points. But also it can be, you know, very hard to read sort of when people are in angry rant mode. Um, and I've actually got a lot of sucker from a friend called Bridget Delaney who has uh, written a book about uh, stoicism and about, you know, what you can control and what you can't. And I feel that, you know, I put 101% into trying to make sure that my journalism is fair and I've done the best job I can. And then to a certain extent, that's all you can control and you can't control necessarily people's responses to it. Yeah, that's a brilliant way of managing it. Um, I guess in wrapping up, Jill, um, what do you see as the future of journalism? Where is it heading as far as you can see? Wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, I think investigative journalism and analysis uh, will be really amplified and I think uh, it's quite interesting, like there was a lot of discussion and has been for some time around sort of citizen journalists and what is the role for the mainstream media, for example, when anyone can be a citizen journalist on social media. But I think what you really, what has been interesting is that often, even when you do look at social media, what is, you know, that that, that the actual pieces that tend to be promoted are still the ones produced by, you know, by, by mainstream media. So I think that they're will always be a role for, for journalists. And I think it is as we move into, you know, an increasingly complex 
world, it will become more important than ever to have trusted media sources. Uh, and I think there is lots of exciting developments around, I mean, just the way that we tell stories, um, the way that we uh, use reader feedback, the way we engage with readers. Um, you know, it, it feels like an exciting time in journalism, actually. That is a, a wonderful, um, I guess, uh, anticipation of what the future holds. Because so many times people say, you know, the future of books is, you know, threatened and the future of journalism is threatened. But I really love the way that you you embrace the new aspects of writing, the new aspects of, of, of communication. And you say, you know what, let's run with it because, you know, our job is important. And I think what you've really touched on nicely too is it's trust. And I think that's why people will always go back to those those publications that have the history and the and the the reputation that they, they do present, you know, the balance approach, the two-sidedism, whatever they're calling it these days. So um, on that note, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and sharing with us the the career that you've had and the career that you're about to have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Many of you listening may not want to be a journalist, but I think what Jewel demonstrates is that writing is a craft, that it can be learnt, and that whether we're writing about world affairs or financial affairs, there are formulas for researching and writing that anyone can use to become better at what they do so that our work can have an impact and spark real and lasting change. So let's finish with a joke because I know you're waiting. I have a friend who writes songs about sewing machines. Yeah, he's a singer-songwriter, or so it seems. And here's a motivational quote from the iconic author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams. He said, I love deadlines. I like the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. Don't we know that? Well, that's it for me. All the best and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do you want to get started as a professional copywriter? Have a look at our course, Copywriting Essentials. Created by Bernadette Schwert, this five-week online course will teach you how to write words that sell and get paid to be creative. Find out more at writercentercomau slash copywriting. And thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au.